This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Aristotle Manning. Aristotle worked as a cancer research associate at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard before becoming a community health worker in the greater Boston area. Ultimately, he founded Boswell, a company that deploys a free web-based application to help community-based organizations with record-keeping. Aristotle, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, so first I, I wanted to just um, maybe go back in time a little bit and, and hear about your, the, the leap you took from doing cancer research to community health. I imagine uh, working at MIT and Harvard was, was a great experience, but then um, to go directly into community health, uh, if you could just talk about that sort of thought process, maybe kick back you might have gotten from other people. Sure. So a lot of the reasoning for jumping from cancer research to community health worker is um, tied to just leaving my comfort zone, getting out of my bubble and doing something different. Uh, for the most part of my career and, and just my, my childhood, I'd grown up in research labs. So my father has like a PhD in biochemistry. My parents always worked in the pharmaceutical industry. So my college summer internships and then you know the work I did right after school was very much in the biotech pharma space. I also had this background in molecular biology when I came out of Michigan uh, as an undergrad. So I, I had this orientation towards doing a PhD and being, being on that biomedical sciences pathway. Um, but I felt like I was really interested in bench to bedside at the time. And I had seen a lot of the bench in the laboratory setting. I'd never really understood what it's like to work directly with people. And that's something I wanted to get more experience about. So um, I considered a lot of options in the spring of 2014 after about three years in the cancer research setting, but then um, found this opportunity to work with community-based organizations and, and opted towards that direction. Okay, excellent. Um, but did, so were there other people around you who were kind of um, encouraging or discouraging you from, from taking that leap? I imagine um, even from a financial perspective that, that might've looked differently from being a cancer researcher to a, a community health worker. Um, you're definitely dealing, I'd imagine you're surrounding yourself with, with different types of people in those two settings. So did you, uh, what was, what were kind of people around you uh, influencing you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of outreach to mentors and advisors and um, just trying to get a sense of what to do next. Um, but a lot of people basically said, look, you're 24 years old. Uh, you don't have a lot to lose. Uh, it's good to get out there and get new experiences and, and try new things and sometimes see if you might be able to carve out a new niche. Uh, you don't know what you don't know until you go out there and, and experience it for yourself. So, I mean, that was kind of some of the feedback I'd gotten. Um, before I left uh, research altogether, I had you know, considered things like consulting in the biotech world. Um, during my time at the Broad Institute, I was also working kind of on the down low for a, a small uh, cancer diagnostic startup company and was just kind of interested in that, in that startup world. And um, it was just something different. And then it's probably, I probably didn't mention it to you earlier, but even after I left cancer research, while I was working as a community health worker, I continued to do some part-time biotech business development roles to kind of keep myself in the game. So I was interested in also the biotech space with the business end of things. But again, I felt like, you know, there was something that was compelling me to work more directly with people and do something different and completely different, right? So, I mean, I, I was living in Cambridge um, 
in Porter Square, working in Kendall Square. You know, it's eight minutes on the T, um, point A to point B. You don't really see a lot outside of you, uh, outside of that bubble. So I really wanted to just completely do a 180 and, and try something different and see how I'd respond and react to it. And so I had met along the way people that worked with mobile health clinics. And that's kind of, uh, that was my foray into the community-based organization world. Okay. And you, you cited uh, one of the reasons also for the jump was, was going out of your comfort zone. Um, what, what was the work like as a, a community health worker and how did it push you outside your comfort zone? Sure. So, I mean, you know, Boston's an interesting city because it's um, very much segmented in terms of like, uh, you know, where opportunity exists and where poverty is. And um, in some ways, it's just highly gentrified, right? You have kind of these very fortified areas where you don't, you don't see a lot of poverty and then you, you move a couple blocks over and all of a sudden things look very different. But if you're within, you know, the, the former and, and that kind of gentrified area, you don't often see things, you don't have a conception of what things might be like. And so, you know, living in Cambridge, people would always say, you know, don't ever go to Dorchester or Roxbury. You know, it's dangerous down there. Um, things are different down there. Or same, same thing with East Boston or Chelsea, right? And so, you know, I kind of went into those neighborhoods with this conception that, you know, something's going to happen to me or um, I shouldn't be in those places in the first place. And so part of that was like, all right, you know, um, addressing those uh, concerns or what people had said to me. But more of it was just, it was kind of shocking to me um, how many missed opportunities there were out in these neighborhoods. You know, I, I had no conception of the fact that you could be out in East Boston a Thursday evening at a mobile health clinic in a neighborhood with one of the highest liquor store to grocery store ratios in all of uh, Massachusetts. And you'd see people just showing up to get food, toiletries, and clothing, but also drinking Listerine, which is 21% alcohol, and wearing green hospital gowns and going in and out of Boston Medical Center emergency departments 100 times a year. And that was just kind of like, in terms of my, the biggest thing I had to adapt to was just kind of how shocking a lot of this was to me. I had no, uh, I couldn't, have, couldn't even imagine that some of these things were occurring out there uh, just a few miles from where I was living, right? So um, this was kind of a very eye-opening experience, um, to say the least. Sure, yeah, I, could, I can definitely see what you're saying about, uh, I lived a summer in Boston um, and uh, worked in Brookline and went through Roxbury on my way to work and um, going from the back bay to Roxbury, um, Two different scenes for sure. Um, I I wanted to ask you also about. Um, so you said you you kind of got into this, and then with a, a person as a person who didn't really have more of a you said more of a biomolecular science background. What roles uh, were you able to play with these mobile health clinics and community based organizations? Yes, I mean my main role was observer, and um, and I think actually from a research background we think about like scientific method, the first thing you do is make observations and then you kind of make deductions from there. And so for about 18 months from the spring of 2014, really about May of 2014 through 2015, I was very much in observation mode. I was working with these churches, food pantries, mobile clinics, needle exchanges, kind of spectrum of touch points out there, um, serving those in need and just trying to understand, you know, what it is that they're doing? Why is it that they're doing it in, in certain ways? Um, but one of the things that became apparent to me was that these organizations are under-resourced nonprofits. They're not technology enabled. And 
the, the, you know, the constant theme was that they were using pen and paper for record keeping, which it just kind of blew my mind because, you know, I'm coming from this kind of tech oriented background um, in the cancer research setting. Uh, we're doing, you know, uh, drug discovery and, and screening novel therapeutics for um, cancer. And here I am out there in East Boston or Dorchester uh, at a mobile clinic or a drop-in center uh, doing intake on pen and paper but on individuals who are frequent flyers to the hospital. And, you know, there are a lot of missed opportunities to coordinate care. So yeah, in terms of skill set, I mean, I was just kind of observing and then piecing together information. And then um, that's how I kind of took my next step. So as a, were you employed by these organizations or you're more just of a volunteer? What was, did you have kind of an official title with them or? There were a handful where I was actually employed with, um, and, I, and they weren't paying me anything. So, I mean, I guess technically volunteer, but I was kind of, I had a role with the organization. Uh, one of them was the Family Van, which is a mobile health clinic through Harvard Medical School, uh, started in the early 1990s. And so they do a lot of work in, in some of these neighborhoods um, through their mobile health clinic. Um, and then there were a handful of others that I, I, I just got to know and um, built relationships. And for some reason, I felt drawn to go out there and, and work with them and continue to get this exposure and experience. Hmm. And so the, the, you keep saying community-based organizations. Are these, when, when I hear that term, it almost seems like they wear a lot of hats and kind of the, the lines get blurred with what their um, function is in a community. What, what different things do they do? Um, healthcare, I imagine, provide, provide some form of healthcare to individuals, but you've also said, you know, toiletries, food. Um, what are the different things that people depend on these organizations for? Sure. There's a vast array of community-based organizations out there. Um, you know, you have the homeless shelters, the food pantries. Churches are kind of multifaceted, do a lot of different things. There are these mobile health clinics that are deployed to different sites and syringe service programs for those that are, you know, dealing with opioid addictions. Uh, and the list goes on. But ultimately, they're all kind of uh, an embodiment of the safety net. Right. So in many ways, like, you know, there are social services that people can access. Um, and then there are certain welfare benefits that, you know, give people uh, some ability to uh, get to the next point in their lives. But these community based organizations are kind of like this informal safety net that uh, exists in any zip code that you go to. And in many ways, like uh, they fly under the radar because people don't really uh, know about them until they really have to access them but they've they're always kind of been these long-standing touch points that have existed in any given community and um yeah i mean they do kind of informal care management it's not always healthcare oriented but they address you know the socioeconomic risk factors that are critical to someone's health and help people uh stay in the game so yeah they're just really the neighborhood touch points and i think people have become more aware of them um, as the, you know, the middle classes continue to shrink and people continue to become more vulnerable and are increasingly dependent on these organizations. How, so how, uh, would you say the, the, the main mechanism is, is the main mechanism for these community-based organizations to stay alive? Is it government funding? Um, faith-based organizations, I, I imagine wouldn't have as much of that. Um, so maybe private donation. Could you just speak to to who's really keeping these things alive? Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I'd say that 
maybe 75 to 80% of these community-based organizations are kind of these small mom and pop nonprofits that are just, you know, maybe they're funded through a congregation, uh, local donations. Uh, sometimes there might be a thrift shop that, you know, they sell some goods or items and they use that to, to bootstrap the organization or the service center that they're running. Um, you know, I've come across food pantries like in South Boston, there's a church um, that serves a number of neighborhoods and they do it on a $5,000 budget. That's what their food pantry operates on. It's just donations and it's just the, the goodness of what the neighborhood has to offer in terms of uh, supporting that organization. Um, so as you can imagine, they're, they're pretty cash strapped and uh, resource limited. Then you have, you know, some of these organizations like the larger shelters, right? In Boston, you might have something like, you know, Pine Street Inn or Woods Mullen. And shelters are actually federally funded. They get uh, funding through housing and urban development, and they have to generate data called Homeless Management Information System data, HMIS data, that's conveyed to, to HUD uh, so that they can get um, funding allocated to them to, uh, based on the number of heads in their beds, right? Um, then, you know, you have syringe service programs and, and mobile health clinics that might get some state and federal dollars. But ultimately, the majority of these organizations, um, even the ones that are seemingly well-funded, uh, have very few resources given the amount of work that they have to do and the growing demand. And so that's what's kind of created this technology gap um, and has pushed a lot of organizations to be dependent on pen and paper. Hmm. Are the... So the individuals who are um, utilizing the community-based organizations, could you just paint a better picture of, of who they are? I, I imagine they uh, would be predominantly people of color. Um, they would be, uh, not, not I, I don't know what their employment status would be. Could you just paint a picture for who's kind of um, utilizing these organizations? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and this is something I'm, I, I'm continuing to learn about and, uh, you know, discover more about what this population looks like. So, you know, when I first went out to the neighborhoods like East Boston and Dorchester, especially kind of as we were doing some of this outreach work, uh, there was a focus on, you know, the homeless population. You know, that's kind of who we associate with poverty and kind of the individuals that are slipping through the cracks of the healthcare system. Uh, and around that time, I was also, you know, shadowing some of the folks at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. And so I was just very interested in, you know, the homeless population. And, uh, and, and some of the individuals, like the ones I'd mentioned, you know, the ones drinking Listerine and wearing the green hospital gowns and in uh, the emergency department, they're very much homeless. But it turns out that, you know, on any given night in the United States, there might be 600,000 people uh, that check into a homeless shelter. And, you know, cumulatively throughout the course of the year, maybe a few million, three to four million that are considered homeless. And so it turns out that the majority of individuals that are checking into these organizations are actually kind of the working poor or just marginalized populations that um, are struggling to make, make ends meet. And in many ways, they're invisible because they're not necessarily homeless. Even within the homeless population, 80% uh, of people that show up in a shelter uh, show up one night in a year, right? And all bets are off as to where they go after that. Um, another 10% are episodically homeless. They check into shelters or social service organizations periodically throughout the year. But again, we don't know where they go. And it's actually 10% of that homeless population that's truly chronically homeless. The ones that, you know, we associate with that street corner and the panhandler and 
um, we can actually put a face to an individual and, and, and consistently see them out there. Um, but then in terms of all the rest of those individuals, I'd say that they're housing insecure. And just because they have a, you know, some sort of roof above their heads, it doesn't necessarily mean they're in a much better situation. They might have a Section 8 housing voucher. It might be in another unfavorable living situation, maybe doubled up. A lot of people sleep in cars. It's really hard to keep track of, you know, where individuals are and, and, and how they get by. Um, there's actually an interesting book that uh, came out a couple years ago by an author named Matthew Desmond who's actually now based in Jersey, um, and it's called Evicted. And he talks about how when he was in Milwaukee in like 2009 at the height of the housing crisis and you know, beginning of the recession, uh, something like one out of eight renters in Milwaukee was evicted. And so these are folks that are not necessarily homeless, but they're kind of just you know, out there struggling to get by. And as you can imagine, the working poor, that population is growing because the middle class is effectively shrinking. There's, there's some blurred lines there. With regards to kind of demographic information, um, yeah, I mean, it, it disproportionately affects people of color, but it turns out that there's also a lot of, you know, white poverty, which is something that I, I hadn't had much exposure to. Um, but early on, as I was working on Boswell, I, I spent some time out in Colorado Springs, and there are far more rural areas in this country than there are urban areas, um, or maybe actually they might, might be even, right? And so Again, there's another population out there that it's relatively invisible, but they're very much um, struggling to make ends meet. And the community-based organizations are the first place they go to in times of need. So when you were doing all this observing um, and you identify the need for um, sort of better record-keeping strategies, uh, when did you make the jump to start Boswell? Um, and how did you initiate funding and things like that? Sure. So, you know, I was working out in the neighborhood organization starting in May of 2014. And very early on, um, this idea of addressing record keeping uh, was something that was very interesting to me. And um, probably in the summer of 2014, I reached out to engineers I knew in the greater Boston area, including people like Mike Neary, right? And uh, my neighbor, uh, Will Leonard, um, who you may have met as well. And uh, I actually hosted a, a little event in my, uh, my apartment in Cambridge called Pizzas and Beers for Software Engineers, because I was really interested in getting some insight on, you know, what to do about this and, and how to go about building uh, something to address record keeping at the neighborhood level. Um, so actually, uh, my neighbor, Will, at the time in, in Porter Square, uh, he offered to help me. And we built kind of the, the Boswell 1.0 um, kind of record keeping application. And for some context, um, Boswell is an old English word that means companion and record-keeping assistant. So if you're Sherlock Holmes and I'm Watson, uh, you might say, you know, I'm lost without my Boswell. And somewhere on YouTube, there's a clip where he actually says that. <laughs> and so um, the idea of Boswell is it's actually like, um, you know, we want to be that companion record-keeping assistant. So, yeah, in the, by the fall of 2014, Will had helped build out this, like, uh, prototype, minimal viable product um, application for community-based organizations. And at the time, it was like a, a native Android application and the data was stored locally on a, on a tablet and we did our best to encrypt it. But we just, you know, put it out there in the, in the hands of a few organizations. And we said, look, you know, go ahead and use this. And on my end, I was actually working at some of these organizations and I found it beneficial to get off a of pen and paper and to use something more digital. Um, the feedback that we got early on was that no one was going to pay for it. 
mean, that was the reason we didn't have software in the first place. I mean, Salesforce and things like that are way too complicated. Even if they had to, you know, find a, a contractor to build some sort of uh, customizable solution, you know, they couldn't pay for that either. So they said, we're not going to pay you a dime for this because you can't afford it. Um, so we said, fine. But we just started to kind of put this out in the hands of organizations. And we just want to test if, if, if it actually could be used, if it addressed the pain point of, you know, client intake, data reporting, if it could improve efficiency in some sort of way. And then, um, yeah, more organizations started coming to us. And we said, all right, wait a second. Like, we don't actually know what this is right now. We're not even incorporated as anything. It was kind of very much nonprofit minded the way we were building it. But we figured, all right, uh, for this to be a tech solution uh, and to be scalable, we might have to find a value chain. And we can't simply just be a nonprofit and, and try to go get donations to build this out. Um, there might be a value chain to tap into, and that's probably tied to the data layer that's being generated um, through these organizations on a population that's very vulnerable and, and, and costly to the healthcare system. So when you first started putting Boswell out, um, was it hard to get, especially some of these mom and pop organizations to get on board with it in terms of just the tech gap? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the hardest part is that at, at the community-based level and the safety net, everything is relationship-driven, right? And so, I mean, people show up at these organizations because they are trusted touch points. They have relationships with people that work at these organizations. And, you know, they, they look like one another and they can relate to one another and they have shared experiences. And so the notion of like, you know, some Cambridge tech oriented guy going to Dorchester or going to East Boston and saying to an organization, you know, knocking on their door and saying, Hey, we have the software application you should use. Uh, it can be a bit off putting. Right. And so um, certainly when I was kind of cold contacting organizations, they're like, who's this guy? You know, what does he know? Why is he coming to us? You know, there's always a bit of um, suspicion in that sense. But uh, earlier on, some of the organizations that I'd already been working with, you know, we kind of built that relationship. They knew who I was. We were very much co-developing it with them. And so they were kind of our early adopters. And as we, you know, continue to grow, uh, we leveraged those relationships so they could speak on our behalf and kind of convey our message. So you started Boswell in 2015, correct? I technically started working on it in the spring of 2014 and then okay. actually incorporated the company in 2015. So, you know, who knows what the actual start date is. And then I started working on it full time in 2016. So it's just kind of incremental. Yeah. Can you uh, just talk to more of the, the evolution of Boswell and how, you know, where, like you, you sort of alluded to where you started out, but how has the company changed? Have you taken on more people? And then sort of how this, the, the record keeping service has evolved um, to where it is today? Sure. Okay. So uh, a lot of points, I guess that's, you know, try to summarize six years um, as, as well as I can. Um, so if we go, you know, from where we started um, kind of the spring of 2014 and the fall of 2014, um, you know, we put out this 1.0 iteration of Boswell and it's, it's this native Android application. Uh, we, we're purchasing these tablets and we allow people to kind of do the data entry and then it's information stored locally but at least it's helping them kind of build these longitudinal profiles of the folks that they're serving. And at the time we probably had like four or five like test kitchen organizations around Boston that were working with us. So then um, 
you know, it became apparent that for this to be scalable, it should probably be a web-based application and not like a native application. And so I said, all right, well, where am I going to find a, a web developer? And so um, serendipitously, I, I reconnected with another friend of mine who had just finished like a, a launch academy coding bootcamp for uh, Ruby on Rails developers. And, you know, he's a good guy. He was looking for more experience. He was interested in what we were doing. So then he kind of started to build out the Boswell 2.0, where, you know, we built um, this web-based application that can be used on a phone, tablet, or PC. It's mobile responsive, um, all, you know, hosted on AWS. And uh, we continue to kind of scale the application that way. But still from like a, a value chain standpoint, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that I had the sense that this couldn't be a nonprofit. I mean, it had to be something different. If it had to scale. And that had to be tied to the data layer. And so um, I started to recognize that a lot of the folks that were visiting these organizations, and particularly the vulnerable individuals, were frequent flyers to the emergency departments. So in the winter of 2015, I started shadowing in, in some of the, the hospital uh, EDs. So like at the Brigham, Mass General, Boston Medical Center, um, found some you know, physicians who were, who were kind enough to let me just kind of come through and, and shadow. And it's interesting. I mean, you, you see people and you go there a Friday night, uh, any given Friday night at one of these hospitals. And there's kind of, it's predictable. And it's like clockwork how people show up, right? I mean, you have people early in the evening that show up for, you know, whatever, you know, common ailments. Then there's kind of a wave of people that show up to car accidents and so forth. Um, but there's continuously individuals that are showing up due to these socioeconomic risk factors, right? I mean, um, housing insecurity, a lack of access to food, um, something else that's driving uh, an underlying health condition, but it's a preventable upstream uh, social health determinant. And so I went to the, the emergency departments after that, mostly like on the, the, you know, the directors or the people that are more financially oriented. And I said, look, you know, you must care a lot about your frequent flyers at the hospital um, because they do consume resources uh, we have information on those individuals because they visit community-based organizations using Boswell. Uh, why not build a bridge together? And long story short, there's kind of a health economics catch-22 with hospitals and emergency departments in the sense that prior to Medicaid expansion, a lot of the folks that were visiting emergency departments were uninsured. And so the care is uncompensated care, which becomes a write-off to hospitals, and it's very burdensome financially. But, you know, post-Affordable Care Act and, and Medicaid expansion, uh, a lot of these members are now insured, despite the fact there's plenty of uninsured individuals in any given expansion state. But a lot of these members are insured, and um, the hospital would rather see them than not see them, if that makes any sense. You know, a Medicaid reimbursement might be, you know, 70% of commercial insurance. But you'd rather see that guy 100 times than not see him at all, right? And so that's it's a bit of a catch-22. And, and, and it does affect like, you know, some of these shifts towards value-based care because of the incentive um, uh, along the way, right? So we were kind of spinning our wheels talking to hospitals. And for about a year, I was actually just kind of talking to hospitals, emergency departments, and, and trying to get a sense of what they cared about because we were positioning ourselves as a mechanism to, to help reduce frequent flyers in the healthcare system because we knew that they were showing up at community-based organizations and, and someone ought to care about them. Um, so then the next pivot was actually to move further up the value chain to health insurance plans. 
And just to kind of give you an overview of like Medicaid um, and, and some additional context, you know, Medicaid is the nation's largest healthcare program, 75 million Americans, costs exceed $600 billion a year, um, started 1965 through the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. Um, and the way it operates is that it's half funded by state and half funded by federal dollars. So in Massachusetts, for example, um, just around 2 million people um, who have met Medicaid, so a little over a quarter of the population on mass health, has a $17 billion program. Half that comes from the state taxpayers, half that comes from federal, tax, um, federal dollars. And states over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, in order to kind of be mindful of their budgets, they've actually outsourced the risk of managing Medicaid members to these organizations that are literally called managed care organizations, uh, MCOs. And so across the country, you have things like United and uh, Aetna and Molina and Centene and New Jersey. In Ewing, New Jersey, you have Horizon Health, right? Blue Cross in New Jersey. And um, basically, they're given uh, a set amount of money per member that they cover, and it's their job to manage that risk. But anytime some of those folks crash in the system, uh, they have to foot the bill, right? So uh, we eventually uh, shifted our focus from hospitals to health insurance plans, um, probably like in 2015. And then um, again, you know, over the next couple of years, there were some pivots in the actual value proposition we'd be presenting to hospitals or to health insurance plans with the data layer that we were generating. And um, initially, the focus was that we could identify um, the highest risk individuals uh, that are on the health insurance plan roles and figure out ways to predict risk of hospitalization. Um, long story short, although I'm happy to go into details, uh, the burden of proof of that's very high and we didn't have the data layer or the algorithms or the clinical or claims data to work with from the health plans to do that. Um, and then, you know, through that experience talking to health insurance plans, uh, I may have alluded to earlier, I went to other markets. I left Boston for a little bit. I went to Colorado. Uh, then I went to, to Philadelphia, um, Wilmington, Delaware, Pittsburgh. I mean, all sorts of different places. And um, we made another pivot, which was that we recognized that health insurance plans, as much as they care about identifying their highest risk uh, and costliest members, uh, there's another population that's also known as kind of Medicaid's MIA. Um, the unreachable Medicaid members. So if you're a health insurance plan, again, like, I don't know, Blue Cross in New Jersey, and maybe you have 900,000 members, uh, it turns out that a third of them are completely missing in the system. They don't have an address. They don't have a phone number. They don't show up in primary care. There's no breadcrumb trail on them. And so despite all this work to provide coverage to individuals, um, people have coverage, but doesn't necessitate access to care. And as a health insurance plan, um, you care about that because you have to be compliant with state Medicaid contracts um, to screen and engage members. And then also many of these individuals that are on your uh, enrollment files, but not accessing service uh, are kind of check engine lights. And you're concerned about them because they're rising risk. So this is all to say that over the last few years, you know, we've done our best to do like, you know, domain understanding and value chain discovery and we've shifted our focus to um, helping health insurance plans reach their unreachable members. Um, I think it's really cool that at the beginning, you know, you really could have just started out as a nonprofit, but you decided to find some, you know, commercial value in your data. Um, so really, you, you, 
from what I gathered, you you started looking at emergency departments, but then it became clear the target was the insurance companies. Because could you elaborate a little more on that reason again? Why it was in the insurance companies? It's because um, they were kind of footing the, these bills for the patients who went MIA. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of the top of the value chain. And I guess one of the lessons earlier on, and, and something we try to keep in mind moving forward, is that you know everything is tied to a value chain, right? And so we were you know starting out by understanding kind of the, the, the base of that value chain, which is the fact that there's an individual who struggles to access care, he or she visits a community-based organization, uh, that's great. And, and the next rung in that value chain is going to the hospital, right? And so the hospital, the emergency department, um, they see an individual, if it's an uninsured individual, they have to foot the bill. And that's, you know, they take on the risk and responsibility of that individual. Um, but for those that are insured, um, again, you have to go further up the value chain and look at these Medicaid managed care organizations, right? And so, um, and just, just as a little exercise, I mean, if you're a health insurance plan in the Medicaid space and you have 100,000 members, you're getting about $6,000 per person per year uh, from whatever state that you're in. And so think about yourself having like $100 million, or $600 million in payments from a state Medicaid agency to cover 100,000 members, right? And then as you break down that population, 5,000 of them are your super utilizers that'll drive 50% of costs. So 5,000 individuals are going to cost you $300 million in expenditures. They're frequent flyers. Uh, they have unchecked chronic illnesses, mental health and or substance abuse issues. They're a pretty complex population. Um, then you have maybe 60% of individuals who are kind of relatively stable and, and engaged in care. And then you have 35% or maybe 35,000 members that you have absolutely no idea about them. They have a phone number with limited minutes. Their addresses change quite a bit, oftentimes due to eviction or housing insecurity. Uh, and they don't show up at the doctor's office. So you don't have a, a paper trail on them. All you have is like their name, date of birth, gender, and um, $6,000 from the state Medicaid agency. And so for that population in particular, um, this is where we've wanted to focus. It's kind of a literal and figurative blind spot for the health insurance plans and they're holding their breath on that population. And they represent, in many ways, the check engine lights in Medicaid because um, arguably the, the next wave of frequent flyers is coming from this pool of individuals. Did you, so you said only about 2 million of the 75 million on Medicaid are in Massachusetts. So- Yeah, that's right. Did you, um, were there challenges in sort of uh, growing Boswell out of that just 2 million population to the 75 million, where sort of the, the problems with Medicaid and insurance weren't necessarily homogeneous throughout the country? Yeah, I mean, we, we've hardly even scratched the surface of the 2 million in Massachusetts. And honestly, to get to the 75 million, I mean, this is, we're, we're five to six years in, but this is like another 10 to 15 year roadmap. Like we really had to like, get across the country. And I, and I think a lot, a lot, you know, with these early stage endeavors is um, building the blueprint and iterating and, and creating the best operational strategy uh, that can be, you know, uh, set, set in other markets and, um, you know, launched uh, accordingly. But, uh, you know, you bring up a good point in the sense that Medicaid is state run. So there are actually 51 Medicaid programs across the country, if you include DC. Uh, for those 75 million Americans. 
and of those 51 states, I think only about 37 or 38 of them have actually expanded Medicaid in the sense that they um, raised the eligibility um, so that people with certain incomes could actually be um, could actually actually access Medicaid, whereas they couldn't before. You know, one of the challenges with health insurance is that, you know, for many years, and I guess in many markets today, you have individuals that are too poor to um, obtain their own commercial insurance, right? And a lot of insurance is tied to employers. So they might not have an employer that can sponsor their health insurance plan, uh, but they're somewhat, you know, too wealthy um, in the sense that they're not poor enough to be eligible for, you know, government subsidized insurance like Medicaid. And so you had this kind of population that's stuck in the middle, right? And when the Affordable Care Act was rolled out, um, and now it's at, you know, 37, 38 states, it created insurance uh, eligibility for another 15 to 20 million Americans who were kind of stuck in the middle. Um, but there are other states like, you know, Texas and Florida, which have not expanded Medicaid and arguably, um, you know, have many more eligible members out there. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a process to kind of go state by state and, and understand the Medicaid programs. And there's a lot of nuances in them too, right? I mean, you have some Medicaid programs like I would say Connecticut and Oklahoma are kind of these dinosaur Medicaid programs where um, the state still runs everything, right? You don't actually have health insurance plans that sit in the middle. Um, the, the state covers the bill directly to hospitals and providers. Uh, and then you have markets like um, you know Pennsylvania, where you have you know dozens of, of health insurance plans that can be Medicaid managed care organizations. And then in New England, you have Rhode Island and Massachusetts, where you not only have health insurance plans, but you have these provider networks that have uh, created um, kind of network, um, uh, kind of uh, alliances called accountable care organizations, and they share some of the risk and the upside in the Medicaid population. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 still a, a relatively um, similar value chain wherever you go, but there's a lot of nuances which affects kind of the customer customer segments that we want to talk to moving forward. So keeping it on the, the idea of Medicaid, though, like, w- what do you see as valuable in Medicaid and what do you think needs to be sort of scrapped and, and fixed? Sure. Um, so you, you think you know, what works with Medicaid and, and what, what doesn't in a way? Correct. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's any number of ways to go with this and I, I'm, any number of polarizing statements I could make. <laughs> um, depending on what your audience sounds like and looks like, but who cares? Um, I, you know, I, I think that what works with Medicaid is the fact that, um, you know, people need to have coverage, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it's almost a non-starter sometimes for people to even access healthcare if they don't have coverage, right? But still, we're starting to realize that as we, you know, roll out coverage, it doesn't necessarily mean access for everyone, right? And you know, we have to stratify that, you know, that population of who's accessing versus who's not accessing and understand the intricacies and vulnerabilities across those populations. Um, I think another thing that's challenging with Medicaid, and it's, it's kind of becomes a double-edged sword, is the reimbursement rates for Medicaid are lower than commercial insurance. And earlier on with the Affordable Care Act, as they rolled that out, they tried to actually boost the reimbursement rates to incentivize providers to take on Medicaid patients. But you still see it, you know, being like, you know, two thirds to three quarters of what commercial insurance pays. And so what that actually creates is another access bottleneck, because um, if you're a provider and you exclusively see Medicaid members, 
odds are you're going to go out of business, right? And that's, there have been some studies and reports that kind of talk about that in particular. And so in any given place, like, interestingly enough, I mean, so when I turned 26, I lost um, my mother's health insurance coverage, which was like, you know, some fancy Blue Cross program through the employer that, you know, offers it to her, right? So there was a time when um, I could go to Mass General Hospital in Boston, which you can imagine is a nice place to get primary care, right? Um, and that was my quote unquote medical home, right? The four walls of that clinic and, and that care management team. Um, and then um, for some time, like when I had some income earlier on, when I was kind of bootstrapping the company with these, these um, business development, whatever gigs I had, um, I could pay for my own insurance in the marketplace. And the marketplace is another complexity because not enough insurance plans compete in the marketplace. And so um, there's nothing to really drive down prices and, and drive up quality. Uh, not a lot of incentives there. Um, but still, I mean, I might not have been able to go to Mass General, but I could still go to like, you know, other providers and there are a lot of options. Um, interestingly enough, and ironically, um, later on in my Basel experience, I became Medicaid eligible myself, technically falling at, at that poverty line threshold. Um, and so then I had Medicaid. And the first thing I realized is that as someone even who just spends a lot of time trying to learn about health insurance and, and health systems, I couldn't understand the Medicaid enrollment process myself. It's not straightforward. Um, so leave alone someone that might have multiple jobs, might have housing insecurity, struggles to access food, have other, any number of issues to deal with. Um, if I couldn't understand how to enroll into Medicaid, um, that's troublesome. Um, the other thing was that it, it, it severely limits the types of providers I can go to and, and where I can access care, right? Which I can imagine like, as it is, it's not trivially to, trivially to access the healthcare system, but like now we're limiting it and curtailing it because most providers don't want to see Medicaid members. So I think like, you know, it's good to expand coverage, but you know, one caveat is that the, the reimbursement rates are lower. A lot of providers are not incentivized to see individuals in the space. And the other thing is like, you know, someone describes it as like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If I'm out there, um, take the scenario where I, I have a couple jobs and, and, you know, my income hasn't increased over the last couple of years, but the cost of my rent has, right. And I struggle to access food and maybe I have a couple of kids at home, who knows what, you know, this is just like pick a scenario in America. Um, accessing healthcare is not my number one priority, right. Arguably, right. I have other things to deal with uh, to survive. And so the question is, all right, well, um, what can we do to, you know, bring healthcare to the forefront or to address those other socioeconomic risk factors I might have so that my healthcare, um, you know, doesn't go, you know, um, without any attention, right? So that's um, something I think about as well is that, you know, Medicaid covers the cost of care, but it doesn't cover all the costs of everything else that people go through, uh, which eventually when they become, you know, too burdensome, that's when individuals are crashing the healthcare system. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a step in the right direction. Um, I think it, it's, it also takes a village. I mean, any number of parts, any number of moving parts that are involved with this, right? And so, um, yeah, it's pretty, and I think pe people can spend generations trying to understand that, so. Yeah, I think you've touched on a lot of things I've been hearing recently um, with regards to the, like accessibility of healthcare is obviously a big issue. Um, the, the shortage of primary care providers 
And then you throw in sort of the limited compensation from Medicaid. It's just kind of like a, can be a raw deal at times for both, both sides. And um, not to say that Medicaid isn't doing some great things, but um, sure. certainly um, some changes uh, w- w- are kind of seem needed. But then I guess that kind of brings us to the, the holy grail question of like the 2020 election cycle, right? Where, sure. okay. um, like, would this just all like, would, would, would it blow up if we kind of just went single player? Would it be fixed? <laughs> Uh, what are your yeah, well, this on brings that? you back to, you know, polarizing statements, I could say, to your audience. <laughs> well, I can uh, tell you we, we have a virtually non-existent audience, so you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're free for you know, uh, uh, you know, I have faith your audience will continue to grow. Um, okay, but <laughs> so let me, I mean, in terms of like 2020 and single payer, uh, I mean, one of the interesting books, and I don't, I don't read a lot of books, I have to admit that, um, you know, I, I quoted Matthew Desmond and, and Evicted, um, but another book that's really interesting is a book called The Healing of America, by, written by a former columnist for the, the Washington Post named T.R. Reid, and, um, and you know, I recommend reading it. So basically, he breaks down all of the global healthcare systems into four different categories, right? So you have what he calls the Bismarck model which is in Germany and Japan. And I think in Germany back in the day, there was a guy, Otto von Bismarck, who kind of mandated that everyone has some sort of health insurance. But in the sense that like, you go to Germany, you go to Japan, um, everyone has insurance, but it's like a private health insurance, right? And, but there's hundreds, if not thousands of options in those kind of markets, right? So um, what that does, is it kind of, it, it drives competition and probably improves quality, but brings down prices, right? I mean, I think that was the idea of like the marketplace earlier on over here. But what happened is that a lot of these plans kind of drew lines in the sand and weren't really competing with one another and they could monopolize the little mini markets and um, you know, and drive prices accordingly. Uh, you have another model, which is um, basically like the NHS model in the UK, National Health Service, right? So basically everything is government run facilities are government run the payer is the government you go in and out of the doctor's office and there's really no bill right you just kind of walk in you walk out and like that's it right and that's actually pretty similar to what we have with the va and indian healthcare services in this country right so um you're a veteran you just show up present your card and they just walk right out of there right um and you know there are drawbacks there too right in the sense that like um, the government can deny any number of procedures and services because they're also trying to control costs as well right um and then you have this other model which is basically out of pocket um you know fee for service i mean i'd say like a lot of the developing world looks like that you don't have insurance i mean you go to the doctor when you have to and then you you pay whatever you you can afford and then that's just about it right And I, i think you know 80 90 years ago right maybe your grandparents generation they might not have had a concept of of health insurance, right? They would just kind of go to the doctor and they pay a little bit of money and they keep moving, right? Um, and that's kind of what it's like to be uninsured in this country, right? You can I mean, there are some sliding scale payment schemes out there. Um, and then finally, you have this kind of um, Medicare Medicaid concept, right? So, I mean, Canada everything is called Medicare, right? And it's basically government subsidized insurance for private facilities, and so um, you can kind of go wherever you want and then the government, you know, puts the bill. And again, like, 
you know, their, their drawbacks and, and questions about that as well. So I, I bring this up to say that like every other country in the world has one of those systems, one of those four types of systems. You can categorize any country's healthcare system into one of those four categories. The United States, we have all four, right? We have Medicaid and Medicare, you know, for the, the low income and for the elderly and or disabled. Uh, we have people that are uninsured and they pay out of pocket. We have um, private health insurance plans, which is primarily driven through employer-sponsored health insurance, and, and then another portion of which is through the marketplace. And then we have this kind of um, uh, government-oriented uh, system like the VA and, and IHS. And so it makes healthcare reform, I think, very complicated. Um, and you have to think about the fact that when you do reform, you're basically um, moving all four of those parts at once, right? So the notion of basically saying, we're just gonna have a sweeping thing and, and, and flip the switch. I mean, that's a great idea. And I, I support anything that improves, you know, cost, quality and access in the healthcare system. Um, but I personally, I, I might not be well informed enough to know what the ramifications are of like unplugging all four things at once and then try to plug in one thing and, and see, if it, <laughs> see if it moves forward, right? I mean, that, just think about it, right? Like, um, and then the other part of that is that, um, you know, even in Vermont, they tried to have like a single payer strategy. And I mentioned Vermont because some of these ideas come from places like Vermont. And um, I would encourage people listening on the podcast to, to read about what happened in Vermont, what happened with like a, like a single payer sort of model in that state, because it didn't actually uh, materialize into, you know, what's being pitched as what could happen around this country. Right. And so, and then the other thing I'd mention is that a lot of health insurance plans are, are for profit and they're very large corporations. Right. And I mentioned like United, the Centene, Molina, Aetna, which is now part of CVS, which is another kind of giant. Right. I mean, in the last, couple decades, a lot of little health insurance plans have actually merged and become like these, you know, super power ranger transformer kind of health insurance plans, right? They're, they're, they're massive entities, right? And hundreds of billions of dollars, sometimes even touching trillions of dollars, right? And they're all in the fortune 50. And another thing that dictates policy in this country are lobbies. And, you know, it's, it's not often who has the, the largest voice or the, the, the biggest supporters, um, it's who has the strongest lobby, right? I mean, if, if lobbies were not an issue, um, you know, gun control would be so streamlined. You know, tobacco laws would be so streamlined, right? But it's not the case, right? And that's the same with health insurance plans as well. They hold incredibly strong lobbies. And that's not to, to hate on them. I think health insurance plans also, I mean, for as many horror stories about denied claims and everything that goes on, um, I mean, they also have to take on a lot of risk and responsibility and, and I'm not justifying, you know, their salaries and their payrolls and whatever, but, um, but they, they hold a lot of weight, right. And they can influence a lot of decision makers. And so I think like, yeah, it's a great concept to say everyone should have, you know, free and affordable and accessible healthcare. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts to get there. And I'd also say the other piece of this, which I think is actually the, the major thing I think about is that just giving everyone healthcare doesn't eradicate poverty. And I think poverty is a huge driver in this country for why people slip through the cracks. And so, and, and we've already demonstrated that even people that have access to services and access to coverage, um, they might not utilize it because they have other things to deal with. And the middle class is shrinking. 
Uh, for the last three years in this country, the life expectancies have gone down. Dollar General is the number one store in America, right? I mean, that the writing's on the wall, right? And so, like, just because we're throwing uh, insurance coverage to everybody, I don't, I'm not certain that uh, that solves everything. But I'm certain that it ruffles a lot of feathers to say things like that. So, but that's how it is. Well, I'll make sure to check out Healing for. You said Healing for America. The, the Healing of America. The Healing of yep. America. Okay. Yep. Sounds like a, a good balanced book um, in, in light yeah, of all these political tensions. <laughs> and he wrote it in 08. So it was before the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, he kind of anticipated a lot of things. And uh, there's just so many moving parts, right? And I think in some ways we have to do the best of what we have and, and work with it. And also um, kind of wake up and, and start to see the things that are the real drivers, right? Like people don't want to always acknowledge poverty right like you know the most progressive ideologies are coming from places like the bay area but the deepest levels of poverty are also in those places too so you know let's acknowledge what's actually going on and then see how that can fit into our frameworks for uh, for thinking good stuff all right we'll finish up with a, a couple sure. fast-paced questions to learn more about you uh so you walk into a bar bartender says what do you have you say well, it depends on the season, but lately, you know, in the, the winter months, a milk stout, you know, maybe it's like a Guinness, something Irish, but I like like a left-hand milk stout, right especially on. those nitro stouts, something like that. Maybe what? whiskey too. Depends on who I'm with. Warm me up, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Boston or Ann Arbor? Uh, it's tough. Probably Boston. I mean, I, I love Ann Arbor and for, in it, every, for everything it is. But like, um, it, it's hard to describe what formative years are. A lot of people say it's like their childhood or even when they're in college. But I think my 20s have very much been my formative years and um, kind of shaped a lot of how I think about things and what I care about and who I care about, right? And so that's all happened in Boston. So I really appreciate this town. I heard you lived in Lyme, Connecticut. Have you ever had Lyme? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I lived in East Lyme, Connecticut back in the day, which is east of where Lyme disease was found. Is that right? Um, so does everybody get Lyme disease there? You know, it's actually like surprising. I mean, like a fair amount of people do, but I think a lot of people get Lyme disease in a lot of places. But when I was out there, um, when we first moved out there, my mom was like so paranoid that I would get Lyme disease and, you know, ticks and whatever. We were living in the woods, right? And so she would actually send me out like wearing my socks rolled over my pants if you can visualize that right <laughs> and so that was my that was my look in the in the late 90s into the early 2000s when i was out and about especially like you know camping and things like that just the socks rolled over the pants white socks khaki pants right just kind of a, a broken down harbaugh look right and so yeah <laughs> and lastly uh i don't know if you can answer this quickly but the biggest change you'd like to see in healthcare. Um, I would like to see a lot more awareness of the drivers of healthcare expenditures and costs and missed opportunities. Uh, and when I say cost, it's not just the dollar, it's actually like the cost of life and, you know, the cost of society. Um, and so like, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see people to just kind of, or, you know, who, whoever it is that is involved with these things, uh, to pay more attention to these things that are not just, uh, tied to, you know, healthcare as we know, it's actually like a lot of these 
socioeconomic risk factors, uh, social health determinants, whatever you want to call them. And then also, um, you know, leveraging that to address policy issues, which are upstream of this. So that's a couple different things in one, but I myself, I'm still trying to formulate this and, and get a clear understanding. It's still very early in the game for me. And so I'm, I'm also just trying to observe and, and continue to learn about the space. Well, you sound very informed. I can tell you that much. Aristotle, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Great to chat with you. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.